right. Well, we're starting a new series today in Mark chapter 13 that we're calling Left Behind. Just kidding. It's not called Left Behind. Um, it's called The End. What Jesus says about where the world is headed. And we'll be here in chapter 13 for three weeks looking at the capital E, End, according to Jesus. Firstly, we'll look at today, what life is like until the end. And then secondly, next week, we'll look at what the end will be like. And then third and finally, we'll look at living life in light of the end. For the past eight weeks, we've been observing Jesus going head to head with the religious elite in Jerusalem inside the temple. He has faced all of the different parties, all the different leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders. Nobody has been able to match his wisdom or his understanding. If this were a battle of wits, Jesus won. Finally, here at the start of chapter 13, Jesus leaves the temple and he never comes back. So let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 13. We'll read verses 1 through 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And has, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Jesus, these are intense words from you to your disciples and to us. Please, by your spirit, like you promised, illuminate your word to us this morning. Help us to know where it applies to our lives, where we can walk in it, stand on it as we move forward out into the world that you've created 
that you've put us, into the city that you've placed us, into the jobs, the families, the friends, the coworkers that you've given us. Lead us today and open up your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the religious leadership of Israel's authority is ultimately enshrined in the temple itself. Here we seem to see that Jesus is sort of done with the temple. But the disciples, on the other hand, are like little kids on a field trip. They say, as they walk out, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. It's like when I walk downtown and I walk past the Amazon spheres, I'm just like, what wonderful buildings. What are these things? They're just in awe. And you can't really blame them. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, he says that some of the single stones that made up the temple complex were 40 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. Just one rock that made up one of the stones that were a part of this building. He described it as one of the most impressive sites in the ancient world, an architectural wonder. King Herod was the one who proudly enlarged the original temple that Solomon built, the whole complex that Herod built, taking over 50 years to complete. And so Jesus takes this opportunity, presented by the touristic awe of the disciples, to explain the trajectory of where all this is headed. Destruction. Not one of these gigantic stones will be left upon another. That was quite the prediction, which, not so side note, came true less than 30 years later. There's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 11 where the glory of God leaves the city of Jerusalem and goes up to the mountain east of the city, overlooking it. And so this is, in essence, what is going on here. Jesus, the Son of God, come to earth in the flesh, has pronounced judgment on this city and its temple, and is now sitting in authority over it. God's glory is no longer fully represented by what happens at the temple. And so understandably, Peter, James, John, and Andrew are feeling the need to clarify some things. Okay, we need to ask Jesus what he meant by this. They say to Jesus, tell us, when, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are to be accomplished? In verse 3 and 4. This two-part question by the disciples is similar in both Matthew's and Luke's version of this story. Mark is a synoptic gospel, which means much of what Matthew and Luke also describe uh, is also repeated in those books. But in Matthew, it's a little bit more clear what the disciples are asking about. They say in, in Matthew's, uh, Matthew's version, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? But here in Mark, the question is a little bit more gray. They say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. So it's not quite as clear that the disciples are asking about Jesus' return to earth 
And Jesus' response doesn't necessarily clear away all speculation about what this entire chapter goes on to refer to. So frankly, this is one of the most debated passages in Scripture. It's known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse, which comes from where he's seated on the Mount of Olives there in verse 3. It's troublesome because it starts out talking about something clear, the upcoming destruction of the temple. But then, as Jesus' discourse continues moving into the rest of chapter 3, it moves on to allusions and themes from Old Testament apocalyptic and political prophecy. And thus, there are widely divergent interpretations of this passage, of this chapter. Most scholars believe that Jesus begins his answer talking about the upcoming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, and at some point switches gears to talk about the capital E end, the end times with his return to earth. The question is, when does that transition happen? Is it in our passage today, or is it in verse 14, or is it in verse 24, or is it in verse 32? Some scholars don't even think Jesus at all talks about his return to earth in chapter 13. And some don't think he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem at all here in chapter 13. And one scholar thinks he's actually referring to his imp impending death in Jerusalem. So all in all, there's a wide variety of opinions on this chapter. For fair warning. Our pastoral team believes Jesus is talking about some combination of these two events. The destruction of Jerusalem that happened already less than 30 years after Jesus made this prediction in 70 AD and his return to earth. And we'll get into why that is more fully next week. But that interpretation seems to do justice to all that Scripture says about these things. So Jesus takes this opportunity after hearing the disciples' question to lay things out for them. It's very likely that this two-part question there in verse 4 does have an end times ring to it. The second part says, when, or what will be the sign when all these things are about to be, and they use the word, accomplished? And that word can be more of a, a full end or of a consummation, a complete end. When, was, when will all this sort of culminate in the end? And they just heard Jesus predict the destruction of the temple. And as a Jew, hearing a prediction about the destruction of the temple would be a big deal. And it, in, your, in their mind would definitely signify that the beginning of the end is coming. So they understandably want to know what's up. And guess what? Jesus does not give them a timetable of events or a bunch of end times charts, blogs, and vlogs. And this is purposeful. Jesus didn't want them getting all caught up trying to know the when. Apparently, according to verse 32, Jesus does not even know the when of when he's coming back. Jesus does not know when. Only the Father knows, he says in verse 32. The only bona fide time stamp that Scripture gives us 
as believers in Jesus awaiting his return is one word. Soon. Check it out. It's the second to last verse in your Bible. So rather than giving the disciples a timetable of events, he begins his teaching by telling them what life will be like prior to any of this happening. As one commentator puts it, the disciples and believers since want to know the future, but Jesus directs them unflinchingly to the present. I'm going to read that again. The disciples and believers since us, we want to know the future, but Jesus directs them and us unflinchingly to the present. Up until this point, Jesus has predicted his own death and suffering three times we saw on his way to Jerusalem. But as of yet, he has only hinted at what life will be like for his followers, for his disciples going forward. But what about for us? We, of course, don't live prior to 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. But we can benefit from this discourse because similar upheavals have happened throughout church history and are happening throughout the world today in many places. Jesus promised that we who truly follow him will face struggles because of him. How do we deal with times like those? How do we cope in a world that looks down and perhaps even hates those who worship Jesus and follow his teaching? So with the disciples today, we learn that first, Jesus says, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by what's going on in the world. Secondly, don't be surprised when things get personal. And finally, it's really not personal. It's about him. So firstly, don't get distracted by the world. Let's reread verses 5 through 8. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus forewarns his disciples of both political and natural disasters that will occur. But he compares them to just the beginning of labor in pregnancy. Yeah, you're going to hear about wars and earthquakes and all sorts of upheaval. It's just Braxton Hicks. For those of you who've had kids, Braxton Hicks is labor that doesn't do anything. It's just the early stages. You ain't seen nothing yet. A.K.A. you've got a ways to go. And all of you parents who have had especially first-time children know that when the first sign of labor hits, it's not time to run to the hospital. It's time to take a nap. Because the worst is yet to come. And the best, of course, at the end. The disciples don't have centuries of church history to look back on, knowing what's coming. They have no idea what life will be like moving forward as followers of Jesus. 
They probably don't even know yet that Jesus will eventually have to leave them physically. And so he starts off by warning them what doesn't signify the end of all things. So first off, deceivers will come, he says, claiming to be messianic figures. And we know from the book of Acts and uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, that there were at least a few of these sorts who came in the early years after Jesus left earth. Specifically, a man named Theudas, who garnered 400 followers, but then he died, and his movement, movement came to nothing. Another man named Judas the Galilean met the same fate, and his following was also dispersed. They led many astray, but their movements came to nothing with their deaths. And Jesus then moves on to political happenings, wars, and rumors of wars. And of course, in 66 AD, there was a Jewish revolt that ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the emperor Titus of Rome. And finally, Jesus describes natural disasters that will also be happening, earthquakes and famines. We have records of both earthquakes and famines in the decades leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. We have the benefit of being able to proclaim Jesus as an accurate prophet of the future. All of what he said came true. So why does Jesus warn the disciples of these events? Because they're distracting. Because they seem apocalyptic. If a bunch of doomsday deceivers are vying for attention, wars are happening, the earth is quaking, and there's a lack of natural resources, of course the disciples will be inclined to think that the end is near. It's no wonder Jesus gave them a heads up. It was to keep them focused, to keep them from getting distracted. But how? How were they to keep from being distracted? There in verse 5, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. What are these messianic pretenders doing? They are coming in the name of Jesus, but ultimately are drawing people's attention to themselves and not to Jesus. And Jesus says, don't let anyone draw your attention away from me. Whether it's toward a big personality or a cause or to a different Jesus than portrayed in Scripture, the message for us today is the same. Do not get pulled away from the one person we need to remain focused on. Are we distracted away from Jesus by everything that's going on in the world? Is our hope in him weighed down? It doesn't mean that we don't watch the news or read the news but it does mean we don't get emotionally, mentally, and psychologically swept away by the news. It means we need to balance out all that stuff with the truths of God's word. What is our anchor? Is it peace on earth? Or is it the only one who can bring peace on earth? And what about all these political and natural disasters? I mean, we can relate with the disciples in experiencing political and natural disasters. How can we keep from getting distracted by those? Especially with all the zombie apocalypse alarmist clickbait articles floating around. Jesus says in verse 7, Do not be alarmed. 
Another translation reads, don't panic. Don't panic. He says, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus' first imperative to his disciples as he begins to lay out their trajectory is, don't get distracted by what's going on with the world. So where does he go from there? So secondly, don't be surprised when it gets personal. Let's reread verses 9 through 13. He says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It sure doesn't get better for his disciples as Jesus lays out what's coming. They will be delivered over to councils, beaten, brought to trial, betrayed by family, put to death, hated by all. Yikes. And remember, the closest thing to a warning of this magnitude thus far was what Jesus said while he was on his way to Jerusalem. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But that wasn't very specific. This is getting pretty specific. It's getting pretty intense. The audacity that Jesus has here is fascinating. And it really displays the power of the message he eventually entrusts to his disciples. Because after hearing what it's going to entail to remain faithful to Jesus, why would anyone keep this job? Really? That's what's coming? And yet, all but one remained faithful to him. Look at how Jesus starts this paragraph in verse 9. He says, but be on your guard. He doesn't go on to say, be on your guard because they will try to deliver you over and beat you, and you will rise up, defend yourselves, and defeat them in order to establish God's kingdom. No, he says, be on your guard because this stuff is going to happen to you, and I want you to be ready for the opportunities to bear witness. Be on your guard when awful things start happening to you, because that's the context I have you sharing my gospel message. He goes on in verse 11 to promise that in those moments, when they're not sure what to say to their persecutors, the Holy Spirit will be with them, inspiring them with exactly the right words to say. Not words to get them out of persecution, but words to bear witness. There's a man named Stephen whose story is told in the book of Acts. He was chosen to be one of the first deacons in the early years of the church. He and his team were responsible for taking care of the physical needs of the people. 
specifically the widows who needed extra help with feeding their families. His story illustrates exactly the sort of treatment Jesus predicted for his disciples and exactly the divine help that would come as a result of their faithfulness. So keep your finger in Mark 13, but go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6. If you're in one of our uh, church Bibles, it's page 914. So starting in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said. So here's Stephen, arrested because he was proclaiming Jesus, brought before the council, and ultimately he gets a chance like Jesus predicted, to bear witness. And so for the next 53 verses, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard of Jesus. And skipping ahead to verse 51, let's keep reading. This is Stephen talking. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So there's Stephen, caught in the persecution, bearing witness to Jesus, and yet the Holy Spirit is just upon him, within him, giving him a heart for the people that are throwing stones at him. 
asking God not to hold this sin against them, looking into the sky, seeing Jesus smiling, looking like an angel, and yet he's, he's got rocks being thrown at him. Like I said before, why would anyone sign up for this? Why would anyone continue to prioritize this sort of devotion in the face of personal suffering? The only way is if this person, Jesus, really died and really rose again and offers hope worth telling, worth proclaiming, worth prioritizing to the whole world. In that case, when things get tough, it's really not personal. That is, it's really not about us. It's about Jesus. So thirdly, it's not personal. It's about Jesus. Three times from verses 9 through 13 that we read in Mark chapter 13, Jesus uses the phrase, deliver over. In verse 9, he says, for they will deliver you over to councils. And in verse 11, he says, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over. And then in verse 12, he says, the br- and brother will deliver brother over to death. In the original language, in Greek, this is the same phrase Jesus uses of himself when he predicts to his disciples his own upcoming suffering and death. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. That word delivered is that same word. And ten more times in the book of Mark, this phrase describes what happens to Jesus. Judas delivers Jesus over to the chief priests. Jesus is delivered over to Pilate. Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified. All of this persecution that Jesus predicts for his disciples has been both foreseen by him and experienced by him. Jesus was delivered over to the council, beaten, stood before the governor, brought to trial, delivered over by a close friend, and put to death. But what happens next? He rose from the dead. None of that suffering, none of that persecution, none of that pain stuck. He rose from the dead. He offers now a resurrected new life for all who believe in him and what he's done for them. He offers true peace, true hope, true love, true satisfaction of the kind that can only be found when you are reconciled with your creator. That's why the disciples each go to their deaths with this message. Notice the last verse of our passage today, verse verse 13 at the end. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And we just found one verse prior. This isn't necessarily physical saving because most of these people will die for what they believe, will die for what they're proclaiming. Not physically saved, but eternally saved. The most important saving that can happen. There was more to their hope in life other than a high-paying job, a family, a nice house, 
fun vacations. There is a forever peace with God through Christ available to all who believe in Jesus, available to any person who calls on his name. That's why their main priority in life is the proclamation of this message. They weren't distracted by the craziness of this world or brought to despair when the persecution touched them personally. Jesus will be personal to anybody and everybody who wants a personal relationship with him. Jesus says in verse 10 there that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And that verse is just sort of put in there. And we have to wonder, what does that mean? And it, it could mean one of two things. First, that you know, if this passage is solely talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that's upcoming, that Jerusalem was not destroyed until God's church was an international church, that representatives from the whole world had heard and then were dispersed, which, as we know from the book of Acts, is true. But, or this could be still partially unfulfilled, that the capital E end will not come until we, the church, bring the gospel to all nations. In one of his letters, Peter, who's one of the four who's listening to Jesus right here, Peter describes a culture that laughs at the idea of Christians waiting, still waiting, for Jesus to come back. And mind you, this is back in, you know, 60 AD. We're in 2019, and we're still waiting. And he describes a culture that says, what's well, taken so long? Why hasn't stuff happened yet? His response to that is, God's not taking a long time. He's not slow. He's patiently waiting for people to surrender to his grace. In 2 Peter 3, he describes a God that does not want to bring judgment until all the people that will come to know Christ will surrender to him. He doesn't want to bring the capital E end until he's given everyone that chance. That, was God, that is God's priority, and that was the disciples' priority, and that can be our priority too. And hey, we have help. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will be with us, inspiring our faithful witness for Jesus in the face of a hostile culture. Let us continue to grow into a church who prioritizes listening to the Spirit as we show the world Jesus. Let us continue in prayer together. We can't assume that we naturally know how to do this. It's clear here that they needed help in those moments. We need help. We need some serious help, divine help. It's not as much that we should pray, it's that we need to pray. That's the only way. If we're going to be a church that is led by the Spirit to proclaim Jesus in Seattle, God help us. And He will. And He promises to do so. Let us continue to ask Him for that help. Not assuming we know what we're doing, but 
gathering together, asking for his help, receiving his spirit's guidance. Our church is learning that. We're learning to listen to the spirit. We're learning to gather in prayer, not with a pre-planned agenda, but just to go, God, how do we do this? How do we do this at work? How, how can I bear witness to Christ with my coworkers who have been very vocal about their opinion of Christians or of Jesus or of any sort of truth claim? How can I stand there and, and bear witness? How can I love in a way that shows them Jesus? Those are valid questions. And I can't tell you how in, in your specific workplace, in your specific family, in your specific environment. But there is a person that can tell you how. He's more powerful than the enemy. He's more powerful than you. And God will give him to you if you ask. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. He will give him to you, he says. We need him. We need him to proclaim this message, this message that is more important than any message that anybody else is proclaiming, that there is reconciliation with God available to anybody and everybody. That person that they were laying the coats down in front of at Stephen's martyr, when Stephen was martyred, was Saul. You know, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, who's the greatest missionary in church history. If God can turn a person like that's heart toward the gospel, he can turn yours, and he did. And he can turn that co-workers or that family members or that spouses or that child's. It seems like a miracle. It seems like that's what we're asking for, a miracle in those scenarios. And it's true, we are. But you being saved was a miracle too. God is powerful enough to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your promise to give the spirit to us in those moments that we truly need help, that we truly need help staying focused on you, staying hopeful. Lord, we can, our hope can get weighed down with everything that's going on personally, everything that's going on in the world. It's so easy to lose focus, to lose hope. Lord, thank you that we have a complete and sure hope in you. Thank you that you promised to return. And just like you came the first time, you will come again. Lord, help us to have that in our vision. Help us to see that horizon, Lord, that you are coming and that you will bring peace because you are the only one who can bring peace to broken hearts, to broken lives, to broken countries, to, broken, to the broken world. Thank you for Christmas and what it represents, Lord, that you came, took on flesh, took on a human body to be broken for us. 
Help us to remain focused on that in this Christmas season to celebrate that together. In your name, amen. We get some time now to continue worshiping. Additionally, there will be people down here available for prayer. There's an offering box over here if you want to give of your offering, if you call this church home. There'll be communion right here. The body and the blood of Jesus represented by the cracker and the wine or the juice. Additionally, after service today, we have an opportunity to continue gathering together, to continue enjoying each other's company, to continue fellowshipping in Jesus' name with one another. So please stick around for that as we continue to worship.